Hello and welcome to an Askell Leadership Podcast special. I'm at Stansted Airport at the moment, just about to board a slightly unnervingly small plane across to Derry in Northern Ireland, where Robert Wilson, our regional officer there, is going to look after me for a couple of days. We're going to visit some schools, uh, meet some members, uh, meet our executive team over there and get some insights into education in Northern Ireland. And I'm just going to let the microphone run and uh, capture uh, some of the conversations I have over the next two days. So I hope you enjoy it. Our route today we're departing from the South Westerly Runway here at Stansted, making a right turn up towards the East Midlands, and then uh, once north of Leicester, making a left turn uh, north of Manchester towards the northern tip of the Isle of Man, towards uh, Belfast, before we commence our descent. Expecting to land in Derry on uh, the Westerly Runway, where the temperature at the moment is 8 degrees, a few showers forecast for this afternoon, but nothing there to affect our uh, arrival. Uh, so Robert, just to describe where we where we are and where we're going. Well, we've just flown into city of Derry Airport. It's about uh, six miles to the east of London Derry, and we're heading now to Foyle College. Uh, Derry has a huge historical significance, and Foyle College is a school that goes way back to the 1600s. But we're very excited for them because after about 35 years on a split site and two very old buildings they've just moved into a brand new school building about two weeks ago oh wow great so Patrick the principal there is uh, has been a member of Askell for some time and uh, he's delighted that you're visiting making your his school your first call and and what type of schools uh, should I expect to to see today well, today, Foyle College is what we call as a voluntary grammar school. Uh, voluntary grammar means it is fully state-funded, uh, but it is a selective grammar school, and most of the schools in Northern Ireland are selective or non-selective because we still have a 11-plus equivalent examination. In um, It's an unregulated test, but it's uh, it runs... Uh, in the autumn term and the children will be receiving their results of that I believe in the next week or so so it's a busy time for schools as they start their admissions criteria again. And what does that mean um, an unregulated test? It means that um, our Minister for Education, two ministers ago Martin McGuinness who was from Derry here, he um, did away with the Department of Education's transfer test but it was built into some of the political agreements that uh, they couldn't actually do away with selection so the 68 grammar schools clubbed together uh, and formed two organisations one called um, Post Primary Consortium and the other is uh, the Association for Quality Education so they run selection tests and are there some schools which are selective which are moving away from selection? Yes, the, the Catholic bishops introduced um, the idea that really they wanted to move away from selection uh, for social justice, I presume it is. So a number of the Catholic grammar schools have already abandoned selection. Loretto College in Coleraine being the first of those schools, it is now merged, in the process of merging with the local secondary school and um, there are a number of uh, schools but having said that there are some of the Catholic grammar schools which will over their dead body if you like, (laughs) abandon selection. Okay and then just finally uh, as we uh, drive to this first school just 
Uh, for those people who don't know where Derry is, which includes me really, uh, t- tell us a little bit. You said it's a, this area is of historical significance. Yes, so well, just describe it. it it's uh, it was it's right up in the northwest corner of Northern Ireland. It's on the border really with the Irish Republic, with County Donegal. So a large part of its hinterland is in is in Donegal uh, and in the Irish Republic. It, it goes way back to it founded by the. London societies. This whole area was very much influenced by the London societies, the Society of Fishmongers, the Society of Everybody, and they have still have a huge influence in this area. Hence the name London Derry, yeah. um, and um, the they still have a big influence in education, big influence in all sorts of social issues in this area in terms of finance. So we're right up in the northwest corner, um, and um, Derry was the was the last remaining um, fortification for King James way back in 1689, when uh, Prince William and uh, his army uh, they locked themselves in the wall inside the walls. It was sorry, it was fort for Prince William and King James's army tried to attack it. It's a walled city okay. uh, and they were held hostage in there for days and days and days and days, weeks. They were almost completely out of food and water whenever a young apprentice boy did something, I can't exactly remember what, and that helped to save the city from the attack from King James who was fighting to reclaim the throne. And I'm suspecting we're in a place, aren't we, here, where we are going to constantly revisit its history, because its history has just helped shape it. Yes, uh, uh, history history has had a major impact on, on Northern Ireland life, but more and more people, particularly the younger generation, want the, the things of today to be yeah. sorted out. They the want future, the yeah. potholes in the roads to be sorted. They want the schools to be properly funded. They want the hospital waiting lists to be cut. And just this morning, I was listening to a discussion on the radio, uh, very much on that theme, that the old nationalist unionist agenda is much less important in the eyes of the young generation than the day-to-day affairs. Okay. You were saying that th- this would be an area where during the troubles. You were saying even if you went cycling, you were advised to be careful, yes. keep your head down. It was it was it was quite a, a difficult area. There would have been very high uh, military presence. There would have been a lot of paramilitary activity. A lot of people in the large housing estates would have felt very vulnerable to to the paramilitaries. I grew up in a in the east of Northern Ireland, and I suppose during the seventies. My life was very much shaped by the troubles in that when you went into Belfast you had to go in through security gates and be searched. Uh, there were no, there was no access for vehicles into any of the major rural towns. They were just closed off to prevent bombs. The only direct association my family had with the troubles was uh, about 27, 28 years ago when my cousin was shot dead uh, by gunmen and mistaken identity they came he was just married a few months and they were waiting for him he came out to feed his dog outside his home in a rural part of Northern Ireland and gunmen were waiting for him and mowed him down but they did admit later on that they were looking for a police officer and got the wrong guy great and you, you've always you were born and have always lived in Northern Ireland 
Yes, apart from one year when I had a very exciting teacher exchange here in Vancouver, British Columbia. But it means that all, all of those years of the troubles were kind of swirling around through your, yes. your childhood and oh, into absolutely. your adult life. Absolutely, and you know, my, my children who are in their middle 20s now have had a completely different experience of growing up because the last 20 years have been normal. As, as far as normality can be yeah. and it's, it's, it's great to see the, and that's why we all want to see a resolution to the to the political discussion we're just approaching this lovely new school oh, now wow, look at that <laughs> good grief that is a new building and a half uh-huh. uh, Patrick Allen Principal Foyle College Londonderry and we're in this absolutely brand new building two weeks old mm-hmm. or so so just dis- describe it to us uh, <laughs> £25 million new build project, over 20 years in coming to fruition. We moved in two weeks ago, um, opened for business on the 8th of January. Um, Very modern design, very modern technologies, very different to where we've come from. Um, And... um, Hello. How are you? You alright? Good man. Um, but basically um, an L-shaped building, um, so we have a, a classroom block for all of the, the classroom-based subjects, maths, English, modern languages, RE, etc. And then we have a practical wing for sciences, technology, home economics, um, etc. What about inspection? How does inspection of schools work here? In what way? So how much notice do we get? Yeah, how, or? how often would, would, would you expect to be inspected and how many people come in and how much notice do you get and all those kind of things? Oh, blimey. The, we were inspected in 2013 um, and then we had a, a follow-up inspection in 2014 um, because well, the, the, the inspection model has changed mm. Um, it's much more about self-evaluation now and you know we've identified this problem and here's what we are intending to do about it rather than coming in and being inspected. Um, for a while if you were graded as outstanding um, or very good you could expect a follow-up inspection to show that you were still maintaining those standards or if you were unsatisfactory there was a follow-up inspection to make sure that you were improving. Um, They've changed the gradings and basically it doesn't matter what you get there is going to be a follow-up inspection um, to say you know yes either we're keeping this going or we have improved. Um, We get two weeks notice but they're looking at no notice inspections. Totally no notice. Totally no notice. Um, parents would like that, wouldn't they? Parents, parents often say they like that idea. I don't, I've never heard the, the, the view expressed. It, it used to be three weeks um, notice. And to be perfectly honest, I think all the notice period does is give staff an opportunity to get totally wound up. <laughs> um, so it would tend to be a reporting inspector, a deputy reporting inspector, um, maybe two or three inspectors, depending on the size of your school, and then we have associate inspectors who would tend to be principals or senior managers from other schools who come in to 
I suppose you could argue provide a reality check for the inspectorate, you know, because they're actually on the ground in schools and know what the challenges are that schools face these days, um, whereas the inspectorate aren't always Will, will they be people who will have worked in schools, the, the, the inspectors who are leading? Yes, but, well, they, they can be anywhere from primary school through to FE colleges, um, and they may well be inspecting an area that they have no knowledge of, um, for example, careers leadership. or leadership. Um, and what, do, what do parents get at the end? They get a report and a grading around what, how it, good they, the school is? They are dreadfully generic <laughs> reports um, which actually say very little. Um, you, you know, it's very difficult to read between the lines. There is also verbal feedback um, at the end of the, the report and you'll get you'll get an awful lot more from that verbal feedback, but that's not to the entire staff. No. So is that, a, in your experience, is that a process which has helped to hold a mirror up for you to continue to improve a school? No. <laughs> you might have given the impression of thinking before you asked. No. And, and last question, how high stakes is inspection? I mean, how, how important is it to parents, to teachers, to school leaders? Do people lose a lot of sleep, worry yes. about the... Yeah, oh, Absolutely. Um, because what, what te- could happen teachers and teachers and leaders, it can it, it can destroy a school. It can destroy leaders. But of course, at the minute, Jeff, the all the teachers unions are boycotting the inspection process. So yeah. inspections are happening at the moment without any cooperation from anyone other than ASCO members. And you know, ASCO's working pretty closely with. ETI on this. Next we visit Deirdre Gillespie who is the Askell Northern Ireland president and she's also principal of St Mary's Grammar School. Okay so this is the, the back entrance to our new um, sixth form uh, and teaching block um, and th- there's two levels. This is the first level which is really um, the RRE and Geography um, uh, new teaching um, space. So this is just kind of our link corridor taking us through. How many sixth form students do we have? Um, we have 360 Gosh, sixth, sixth form forms. students, yeah, we do. Um, it's split over two sites. It's an academic no. sixth form, isn't it? It's it all, is. all A-levels. All A-levels. Well, we've introduced this year BTEC, BTEC Sport. Um, that's the first that we've had, um, but predominantly 99% um, straight to A-levels. Well, I was asking you earlier about the fact that you're a Catholic, selective Catholic school. Yes. And the ethos and so on and so forth. And you don't have... Um, a kind of mandatory GCSE RE for students. They can choose to do it, but they don't have to do Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, but as we walk around, we keep seeing things which kind of do tell us that this is a Catholic school. So tell us what we're seeing. Okay, so here, um, this is the RE corridor, um, and you can see that there, there's lots of images here of of um, spirituality and, and Christianity. Yes. And you, you can see some of the quotes from the Bible that that, that we have taken out to represent some of some of the images. Um, there, there would be uh, notices, boards where you know children can offer up a little prayer with a special intention. They can hang it on a little tag, and you know it, it's a, it's the idea that we're one one community, and that we pray for for each other. But it's very much around the idea of faith development as opposed to um, traditional rules and regulations of, of of a Catholic church. But it's a sign. I think you've been quite radical. I mean, the school was a high performing school when you started here seven years ago it now performs better than that and yet 
You've done some quite dramatic things in terms of giving more choice to young people at key stage four. Well, yes, we have. So just tell us about um, that. About three years ago, um, we disapplied most of the curriculum at key stage four, and the only two uh, mandatory subjects would be um, English and maths for our students. Um, Not science. RE was no longer mandatory, science was no longer ma- mandatory, nor were modern languages, um, and it was complete free choice. So they had, they had the opportunity to pick seven subjects, um, most of them maintained their science, um, RE and um, languages did take a dip. Um, but other subjects, other practical subjects, um, like uh, technology or um, uh, some of the creative subjects like music and art, their numbers increased greatly as a result of, of, of just having a greater choice um, amongst the and, students. And why did, why did you want to do that? Was particularly something, you know, I think a lot of people would be particularly surprised by the science decision mm. there. Why, mm. why, why did you want to move over to more choice? Because I certainly felt in observing the results of some of the subjects that our children um, were taking that if they had a greater choice of practical subjects that they would perform better. And that has been borne out because when I mapped the results last year, which was the second year of, of that um, initiative, more children were the results were higher um, because children were choosing subjects that they wanted to do now yes they did take science and because they felt science was leading to jobs through the stem agenda but they the 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 languages went um subjects like geography and history went and i saw a huge increase in um, technology for example pe and the results followed because particularly the children were involved in practical type subjects and were doing very much better and did, did you have to work hard to persuade parents and, in particular, governors that this, this was the right move? Well, I had to do a little bit of, of survey work and, and sort of present the facts, present the evidence, because I needed to test it out that it was what was fit for the school. Um, and, and there was some debate, I have to say, in terms of going something so radical from, you know, a very, um, a very rigid and uh, curriculum to something which was completely free. So there was a wee bit of work, but on the whole, um, it, it was what parents, governors, pupils, staff bought into it and and it's been a success. Our next visit is to Cookstown High School with Headmaster Graham Montgomery. Okay, well, Cookstown High School, it's a controlled post-primary school, 11 to 18. The original school was founded in 1806 and um, in 1977, uh, the grammar school, which was Cookstown High School, merged with Cookstown Secondary School to create one single all-ability school. That, that would be unusual, wouldn't it? It's very unusual in Northern Ireland, yes. absolutely. And, and at the same time that this was happening here, other, in other parts of the province, brand new grammar schools are being created. Maybe wonder wait because you're not. And do we, know, do we know whether that was supported by parents and so on? I mean, it was quite controversial at the time. The, I think the thing which was very significant was that the the headmaster of the grammar school was very much a driving force behind the amalgamation. So it was seen as something which would maintain standards rather than diminish standards. Um, when did you say that was? That was 1977. Good. So the the, the principal who led that had been the headmaster of Cookstown High School. So when the two schools were built, uh, two new modern buildings built in 1955, the the grammar school was co-located with the secondary school, albeit the front doors of the two schools pointed in different directions. (laughs) But same community, it's a rural community. Uh, Cookstown is is a fairly uh, vibrant market town. It's the longest main street in Ireland. 
uh, the more people you talk to, the longer that street gets. Uh, we're going, we're going this way. And it is rural, isn't it? Because you were saying you had to close because of snow last oh, week. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of our pupils live in the in the spurns, and we're slightly elevated here. So although it's a big and very uh, vibrant market town, most of our pupils will come from rural areas. And in terms of the school today, that amalgamation is long in the past. What's distinctive about the ethos now? Well, the, the ethos is distinctive, I think, because primarily it's a Christian ethos. It's an, ethos, an ethos which encourages inclusivity and respect. Uh, our mission statement is to provide and promote excellence, opportunity and support. And that encompasses, I think, the three pillars of the school that people should do very well. Uh, those who are most able should do exceptionally well. Those who are less academically able should find pathways which, which enable them to do well. Uh, we believe in providing opportunity. So we have 42 co-curricular and extracurricular activities which run across the year and pastoral support to enable young people to achieve well whatever barriers to learning they have at, the, at that time. And a big emphasis on uh, the arts. I noticed they walk in science. We're about to see. Absolutely, and we, we we have a lot of extracurricular activities, both in the sciences and the arts. In terms of pure art, uh, we have pupils this year who uh, have come first in Northern Ireland, both the GCSE and A level. So it, it's very good at that level as well in terms of the, the pure expressive arts. Uh, there's a long history of drama and music in the school as well, which which has been maintained. And science is something we we our STEM ambassador school we have uh, our head of, of ICT has been the GTC NI STEM teacher of the year this year uh, he was the Sentinus STEM teacher of the year last year so uh, we emphasize that as much as we can. It's interesting because IT has been coming up and you know, when I came across to the conference in Northern Ireland but also just talking to people today there's a real sense of, of seizing the opportunities that IT gives for children to learn better. Well, I think we've been at that for a very, very long time, but we certainly got to the place where what we want now is IT, which improves the learning experience yes. as opposed to ticks the box to say you've, you've yes. done IT. You know, I've been teaching now for 22, 23 years. I think most of my career has been about the IT slot when you would do something to say, oh, I've used IT. Uh, we're now very focused on the idea that, that given the world we live in, and the digital enhancement that IT should be something which actually improves learning yeah. and builds their capacity. Yeah, and, and last thing, just ask you about this, this Christian ethos. So is it a school with a, a particular denomination? Not at all. Controlled schools are non-denominational schools. The history of the controlled sector is that at the creation of the Northern Ireland state, uh, the churches, which were the foundation for many schools, our school was founded by a, a Presbyterian minister right. just around the corner from where we are now. Yeah. Uh, those schools surrendered, if you like, control uh, of their, their management to uh, the state, uh, and they therefore became known as controlled schools. So we're non-denominational. Uh, but we are church-linked, yeah. uh, which means that there are governors here called transferor governors, and they would represent the main uh, churches in Northern Ireland, but on the basis that they are the churches which transferred control of their schools, yeah. as opposed to just, just being there for denominational and reasons. And if I'm a child in the school, what, what does that mean I'm going to experience? Well, I suppose it's, it's a broadly-based Christian ethos, so you won't find any denominational bias. Uh, we have provision for I me. Mean, we have children who belong to all the main Christian traditions in Ireland, but also those who, who belong to other world faiths and those who belong to no faith at all. Yeah. So in that sense, it's, it's not a pervading uh, denominational influence, uh, but it's about taking the, the best things that come with a Christian ethos about the idea of respecting individual uniqueness because we're made in the image of God. 
Uh, that leads to tolerance and understanding. Uh, it leads to us trying to work a, a certain way in terms of understanding why children are as they are at any given time. Uh, and that, that requires us to drill down with children and to, and to try and understand what motivates them individually. Yeah. Uh, my name is Amanda McNamee and I'm the principal of Lagan College in Belfast. It is Northern Ireland's first planned integrated school. And I want to ask you in a second about that integrated bit, but tell, tell us a bit about Belfast. Whereabouts in Belfast? What kind of area is that? Right, well, our school is situated up in the hillside, just overlooking the city in South Belfast, in the Castlereagh hillside. We are very privileged to be on an area of natural beauty, the National Trust. Now, you talk about integrated schools, because one of the things I've been trying to learn here is there are so many different types mm -hmm. of schools. There's an extraordinary system. Integrated school, what's that? Well, what happened in uh, the 1970s is a group of parents decided they wanted to have a different uh, style of education for their children. They decided that there were two main systems at that point in time, controlled and maintained schools, and they wanted to see something different. So that pioneering group of parents called the All Children Together movement decided to found their own school system and they opened the first integrated school, which meant that uh, boys and girls as a co-educational school from the age of 11 to 18, irrespective of the, having a faith or no faith, could, be, could attend one school and be educated together. So this is not a no-faith school? I mean, faith still appears, doesn't it? Yes, the, the purpose of integrated education is not to cleanse or, or eradicate a child's culture, religion, background. It's actually to celebrate diversity and to enable a child to uh, be confident with who they are, or what community background they come from, and their politics and their belief systems going forward. And um, is it a selective school? Uh, it wasn't when it was initially founded, but because we saw no change in the grammar secondary model in Northern Ireland, it does now have a small proportion of children entering it who have used either their AQE or GL outcome. That would be a third of the school population. That was introduced by our governors in the 1990s, and that was really just as a means of securing a truly all-ability intake set against the difficulties we have in Northern Ireland with a selective system overall. Sure, and finally, how long have you been head, head there, and what are, you, what are you proud of? I uh, have been head for eight years, and I am also a mother of a child who's just started, so I am proud on a number of levels. I am proud that we are educating all children together. I'm proud that we enable children to reach their potential, and we celebrate success in all its forms. I'm Tony Gallagher, a Professor of Education in Queen's University and currently um, Director of Research in our school which looks after education, social work and social science. And I've just been listening with great interest because you, you made a point which I think everybody would, would agree with and won't be surprised by, but here we are all, the, all these years on still talking about it, that the two key ingredients in, in great education are going to be the quality of teachers, the quality of leadership. And you made a particular point in terms of quality of teaching, which is about investing in the quality of ongoing professional development. Just talk us through that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the research evidence to me is very clear. We need to be very selective about how we get into teacher training, and we need to train just as many teachers as we need, because that's the way to get people in who are the top quality people, who know that whenever they finish they will get work as teachers. Uh, and we don't do that at the moment here, but that's a, that's a whole lot of issues around that. Once you get teachers into the system, 
system, you then should be providing them with the best possible professional development support to allow them to, to expand and grow as professionals. We don't do enough of, uh, enough of that. And we also should provide them with high quality evidence on what, how, how to, uh, what works best in classrooms. We don't have enough work going on here on pedagogy. We don't have an, enough investment in research and pedagogy or classroom practice. Those are the sort of things that actually make a huge difference. We know this from evidence from many, many different places. So I have a concern that here in Northern Ireland we think too much at a system level and we're not actually focusing uh, our energies and our commitment on classrooms where teachers are the ones who are going to make the real difference. I was interested in that because there was a sense, although you, you didn't put it like this, but that there is a waste going on, first of all, at the, the, the sheer number of people you're taking in because that has built into it the assumption that some of these people are not going to stay with it or they're not going to get posted. Yeah. So where should we look to in the world which has got this right, which, which in terms of their recruitment and identification of which are the people who are going to be great teachers but will continue to be great teachers? Who's doing that? How do they do it, if that's not putting you on the spot? Yeah, well, I suppose everyone looks to Finland as the, sort of the <laughs> classic example. Um, but if you look at Singapore, they'd have a similar type of arrangement where there's a very a very focused process on recruiting people into teaching. Um, there are a number of other places that do it too, but that, I mean, the core practice there is you have a very rigorous process. You don't simply just look at their qualifications. It's, it's a much You have a clear sense of the qualities of good teachers and you look for them or look for the potential of them and people you're recruiting into the system. So, and, and, and having a rigorous selection process helps to elevate the status of teaching. But the other thing that's crucial, and this is where we fall down badly, is that you need to, to uh, recruit into teacher training the number of teachers that you need. There's meant to be a model, a uh, workforce model that does that, uh, but it's here it's up to left. We, we, we bring in nearly twice as many as we need. And that means that I think uh, the absolute best people aren't going into it because they don't know at the end they're going to actually get a job as a teacher. Uh, and there's an awful lot of them are in, in uh, subbing work or temporary contracts. And none of that is the is best way to start. And that also means that you don't have a good system of support around them. OK, let me just ask you one other thing, because you talked about um, the importance of teachers engaging with research and knowing what are the strategies that are going to help. And I just want to clarify one thing. If I understand that, that doesn't mean teachers doing research, no. which is often of poor quality in my experience. It is about them knowing where to find, knowing how to make decisions about what is quality, and then knowing how they can apply that in the context of their own classroom. Is that the right kind of... Well, well there's, there's two issues, I suppose. One is around priorities. There needs to be uh, investment in research which looks at issues around pedagogy and classroom practice, uh, because that's a way of giving high-quality information, so teachers can make uh, good choices between different approaches or, or investments that they want to use in classrooms. But I think, and you're right, I think there is a, a role there for, for researchers to do that. But teachers aren't sort of shouldn't be away from the process. It should be done in partnership with teachers. It's not up to researchers to identify what are the key questions. Okay. The teachers are better placed to do that. So in that sort of genuine partnership, you can actually get a much more focused research agenda uh, and evidence which is much more useful to the people working in classrooms uh, on the ground. Yes. You, 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 if I understand it correctly, and I walked on the way to a restaurant last night through Queen, Queen's University and was, was smitten by you know how wonderful it was. <laughs> But teacher training is rooted in that academic background. It is in universities in a way that actually we've got a much more splintered system in, say, England yeah. there. What you're saying, if we're going to get teachers who are working as kind of co-constructors and people yeah. giving critical feedback on research, that link with 
what you might call academia, is going to be important, isn't it? It's important, um, but I think there much has to be much greater partnership with schools. Uh, a lot of the work I've done over the last 10 years is around what we call shared education, courage and collaboration between schools and local areas, between Catholic and Protestant and integrated schools to try and uh, work to the needs of young people in those areas. One of the things that come, comes through hugely importantly in that is the professionalism and expertise of teachers. Uh, and we need to tap into that greater in our teacher training system as well. So partnership is not just around research, it should be around every part of that process. Um, universities have a role, but uh, the schools and the teachers have a hugely important role as well. And at the moment, we don't give them enough uh, space for that. And uh, I said that was the last question, but this is the last <laughs> question. And are you um, overall optimistic about, uh, about education in Northern Ireland? Well, if you weren't optimistic in Northern Ireland, generally you would leave. <laughs> One of the things that makes me optimistic, I've worked with lots of teachers and lots of schools and these, this partnership activity, and I'm constantly blown away by their commitment and their expertise, uh, their commitment to young people. And that is, uh, that I draw energy from that well every time I engage with them. So that, that makes me optimistic. Despite all our political problems, despite the problems about decision-making process, the teachers on the ground uh, are hugely committed to kids, and that, that makes me massive optimistic. Finally, at the end of my uh, visit to Northern Ireland, I get a taxi out to one of the airports in Belfast and the driver talks to me, pointing out uh, different areas, talking about the troubles in the past, how the city has reinvented itself since then, and uh, he gets to talking about education. Is it a good place to live? The kids are getting well educated. My granddaughter's 12. She had to go into grammar school or secondary school, she went to secondary school because she wants to learn drama and stuff like that. Yes. She's 12 year old, she loves the screen she's in. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.